Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Kate Quinn about The Huntress, a novel about the pursuit of justice after the Second World War. Like my most recent interview about the Lost Girls of Paris, The Huntress, to a large extent, approaches the war from the perspective of the women involved, in this case, on both sides. Nina Markova, a Soviet night bomber caught behind enemy lines, is the only person to survive an encounter with a Nazi murderess known as the Jägerin, the Huntress. But when we meet her, the Jägerin is the one fleeing pursuit. Autumn 1945, Altasi, Austria. She was not used to being hunted. The lake stretched slate blue, glittering. The woman gazed over at hands lying loose in her lap. A folded newspaper sat beside her on the bench. The headlines all trumpeted arrests, deaths, forthcoming trials. The trials would be held in Nuremberg, it seemed. She had never been to Nuremberg, but she knew the men who would be tried there. Some she knew by name only. Others had touched champagne flutes to hers in friendship. They were all doomed. Crimes against peace. Crimes against humanity. War crimes. By what law, she wanted to scream, beating her fists against the injustice of it. By what right... But the war was over, and the victors had won the right to decide what was a crime and what was not. What was humanity and what was not. It was humanity, she thought, what I did. It was mercy. But the victors would never accept that. They would pass judgment at Nuremberg and forever after, decreeing what acts committed in a lawful past would put a man's head in a noose. Or a woman's. She touched her own throat. Run, she thought. If they find you, if they realize what you've done, they will lay a rope around your neck. But where was there to go in this world that had taken everything she loved? This world of hunting wolves. She used to be the hunter, and now she was the prey. So hide, she thought. Hide in the shadows until they pass you by. She rose, walking aimlessly along the lake. It reminded her painfully of Lake Rosalka, her haven in Poland, now ruined and lost to her. She made herself keep moving, putting one foot after the other. She did not know where she was going, only that she refused to huddle here, paralyzed by fear, until she was scooped onto the scales of their false justice. Step by step, the resolve hardened inside her. Run, hide, or die. And now, please join me in welcoming Kate Quinn. Hi, Kate. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today. Delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. You spoke with us in 2014, although not with me. And listeners who'd like to hear about how you became a novelist can search for that link on our site. So instead, sketch for us what you've done since The Serpent and the Pearl. I especially talk a bit about The Alice Network, which came out in 2017. I wrote one more novel each set in the Italian Renaissance and in ancient Rome. Uh, That was sort of finishing up the work that I had already written in both those eras. And then after that, I made the jump to the 20th century with the Alice Network, which, as you said, came out in 2017 and which 
was centered around a ring of female-led spies during World War One, who was one of the most spectacularly successful spy networks of the war. And that story is entwined with a post-World War II hunt for missing family and the road trip that comes out of it bonds two very, very different women on that hunt. And as you mentioned, um, the, the Serpent and the Pearl and the Lion and the Rose are set uh, with the Borgias in Renaissance Italy. Uh, you were writing about classical Rome, now you're writing in the 20th century. How do you decide which eras and topics to focus on? Uh, partially that decision comes from inspiration, you know, what is sparking my imagination and firing me up to write, and partly it is driven by market considerations too, because, you know, being a uh, author and not just a writer means you do have to consider what the readers are reading or what they want. And when I was looking for new topics, I happened to see this boom in 20th century war fiction. And right around that time, we were seeing the uh, 100-year anniversaries of so many World War I activities and battles and so forth. And so I started to think, I wonder if I could find something that would really fire me up enough to write in 20th century as different as it is. And so when I started to research, I first found the story of the real Alice Network, and it was really off to the races from that point. So finishing the Alice Network, it made sense to go on in the same vein with uh, 20th, 20th century war stories. Well, you're right. There's an incredible number of World War II novels coming out at the moment. I can't tell you how many I've had uh, sent to me in the last 15 months or so. Yeah, I think we're seeing a real boom there because probably people are becoming more and more aware that, you know, our World War II veterans are aging and there's an urge to hear these stories while the people who were alive to live them and who for whom they are not just stories but reality are still there to actually tell us what the story is and what the history is. That's a good point. So what drew you to the specific story that became The Huntress? Well, I read a really fantastic um, squib somewhere about the very first Nazi war criminal to be deported from the United States and sent to Europe to answer for her war crimes and be put on trial. And it was a woman, and it was a uh, woman who had been serving as a particularly brutal camp guard in one of the women's camps during World War One, served a very short prison, prison sentence after the war, and then... After that, happened to meet and marry an American construction worker who was on vacation in Austria. And then he took her back home, and she took up American citizenship and was discovered decades later as an American housewife in Queens, New York. And her American husband and her neighbors were flabbergasted. They had no idea. They insisted that you know, she was gentle as, a, as, you know, gentle as anything. She wouldn't hurt a fly. And but yet she had this terrible past, and she was in fact you know deported and put on trial for it. And it made me wonder immediately what would it be like not just to be the person who is hunting down a woman like that, to know what she had done, and to wonder where did she go and how can I find her, but what is it like to be the person on the other end when you suddenly discover that someone who was part of your family, who you'd lived with for years, who you thought you knew, who you loved had, in fact, this terrible capacity for evil. And 
that made part of the story and a real spark that I wanted to explore. And then I also had happened to come across the story of the Night Witches, which was the all-female bomber regiment of pilots that flew against Hitler's Eastern Front during World War II. And as soon as I read about them, I knew they had to be part of it. They are just such an incredibly badass group of ladies, you know, so tough, so driven, and so incredibly unknown, I think, in some ways. I certainly never heard about them in my history classes when I was growing up. So I really wanted to fit them into the story, too. Ah, well, I can see how all that fits together. <laughs> I'm a Russian historian, so I did know about the Night Witches, but I agree, I, I don't think I had ever heard about it in school, and I didn't find out about it even until after I had um, gotten out of graduate school. So, uh, But they are a wonderful subject for any novel. Um, although the book opens with the Huntress and her decision to run, um, as I'll read in the, inter uh, in the introduction, most of the novel is told from other points of view. Um, Nina Borisovna Markova is the Soviet pilot, Ian Graham is a British war correspondent, and Jordan McGride is an American teenager living in Boston, and she, Jordan, is obviously um, representing the, the characters that you were talking about who suddenly find this person in their midst. Um, and Nina is a night witch, so we know <laughs> how she fits in. Um, but before we talk about them as individuals, what made you decide to tell your story through these particular points of view? Well, I knew I wanted multiple points of view so that you could see the hunt unfold from various angles, and that would give the broadest um, perspective on it and the also allow for the greatest amount of contrast. I really wanted to write a night witch and not just her post-war experiences, but her wartime life as well, because that history is so thrilling and really it should be widely known. I hope it is beyond, you know, those who are Russian enthusiasts and like yourself and like myself, I'm crazy for Russian history. So I really wanted to include that because it really allowed for the wartime perspective and then as far as deciding to go with Jordan's point of view, she was someone who could provide the intimate look at what a war criminal is like to live with. She doesn't know who she's living with. She has suspicions at times, but she does not know for certain. And she sees a warm, caring side of the bad guy, essentially, because it would be foolish to assume that, you know, all bad guys, all war criminals, all Nazis portrayed constantly as mustache twirling, two dimensional cardboard Disney villains. They were human beings as well. And I say that not to in any way excuse the things that they did, but to present them as being more complicated. And just because my villainess is capable of doing terrible things. It does not mean she's also not a warm and wonderful person to the women in her life that she befriends. So this sets up complications down the road emotionally for Jordan, who then has to battle those feelings when she realizes the truth. And I thought that was an emotional complexity that would give the story a lot of depth, which is why I wanted to have Jordan there as one of the viewpoints. And then, of course, you know, the engine driving the plot, I knew I would have to have a viewpoint of someone on the team of Nazi hunters or war crimes investigators, to use the much less sensational Hollywood term. And I chose my British uh, fictional journalist named Ian, 
who is a former war correspondent and therefore actually has a lot of battle experience. Just he tends to do his fighting with a pen and paper and a typewriter rather than with a rifle. But the men and women who were war correspondents really had quite astounding service records in pursuit of telling the story of the war, often right at the front, in the teeth of the front lines. And so when he gives that up after the Nuremberg trials and becomes a war crimes investigator, he really is obsessed with the hunt for bringing justice to those who have escaped it. And so he allowed me to explore not just the possibility of driving the the hunt forward and dropping the clues and following them across the ocean to where Jordan is living with her new family members, but also he's my opportunity to explore the ideas and the themes of what is justice and what is revenge, what is the difference between the two, and how far do we go in the pursuit of justice, and when have we gone too far? Because those, I thought, were very important questions to raise in any story that is going to be about war crimes and how they should be addressed. I agree that it is, and I think that emotional complexity of all the characters, not just uh, Annalise, whom we'll get to in a minute, um, that was one of the things that I particularly liked about the story, because I agree with you that, you know, everybody thinks they're doing the right thing, even when they're or at least they feel that they have reasons for doing what they're doing, even when they're, what they're doing is something that's really terrible. And it can well be something that's, in a sense, compartmentalized in their lives, and they don't, you know, they just wall it off um, so that they can live with that part of themselves. And then in a family setting, they can be completely different. And really, isn't that much more terrifying? Because... When we look at villains who are the type who portray as evil all the time, like they're evil to everyone they meet, you know, they manipulate and brutalize everyone. Well, for one thing, I'm not sure how realistic that actually is to find someone you know, that you can find them, but it's not as realistic, probably, that someone is 100% bad to every single person they meet. But far more terrifying, I really find, are the people who are capable of doing terrible things and then going home at night and kissing their children and, you know, saying loving things to their spouse and, you know, playing with their dogs and in other ways leading an ordinary life. I mean, frankly, that's a lot more terrifying to me than someone who simply is presenting as the outright baddie all the time. It is. And I think it explains one thing um, that is we're going to get to Jordan now. And one of the things that I think makes her um, com- particularly, um, it makes it particularly difficult for her to recognize what's going on is that it creates a kind of veil almost so that um, Jordan is constantly doubting her own perceptions, even when she does see something that's a little off, you know, because the overall impression that this woman gives who is her new stepmother is very different. Yeah, I really enjoyed having Jordan there as a character. You know, she's supposed to be, you know, the quintessential all-American teenage girl. You know, she's coming of age after the war. She is bright and inquisitive and has all these dreams about what she, what she can do with her life. She has a passion for photography, and those are her heroes, are journalists and photographers. And in a sense, she wants to pursue that as a career, but, you know, she's also living as a girl in the 40s, and her 
the noise that she hears from friends and family is, well, of course, you're going to settle down, marry your boy, your high school boyfriend and work in your father's shop, you know, because that's what's expected of you. So she has this battle, the, t- the essential tug between a woman being told what she should do and a woman who has dreams of her own, which is very much more prevalent in her era, but it has not gone away in today's era either. And then the first real test she's going to face, you know, as an adult is that she's faced with this woman, her father brings home a fiance and then a new wife, a stepmother. And at first she's delighted by this. He's been widowed a long time. She knows he's lonely. She wants him to have that companionship. It's not just jealousy on her behalf, but she sees something off about this woman. There's, you know, sometimes you get a bad feeling about someone. You don't know why. And she doesn't know what to do about that because, and this is something else I was thinking about when writing her, it was a real balancing act to have her be plausibly ignorant of what was going on and yet still have a few suspicions and not have the reader think she's stupid for not catching on. So that was hard to do. And um, I tried to really rationalize that by the fact that In her era, it's not like she's seen any of the movies that we have about Nazis hiding in plain sight or about, you know, any of those books, those articles about war crimes investigators. Those things are not visible to her in her cultural consciousness the way they are ours. All she has is instinct that something about this woman is off and that instinct leads her to eventually start asking the questions that need to be asked. I thought you handled that very well. I mean, it's not just that she was a woman of that era, although that's certainly part of it. Um, I think there was a lot more innocence in some ways then. But she's also 17 years old, and her father doesn't seem to have any suspicions. And so it's, you know, that would be difficult for her. She would, she's not, she, she, the nice thing about her is she has none of the resentment that you might expect for his replacing her mother or anything like that. But it would still be difficult to go to him and say, there's something really wrong about this person that you have decided to make your life on, or even to see it, I think, at that age. Yeah, she is young. And the fact is, is that, you know, a teenage girl who had been in the middle of a war zone might have had more suspicion and be more and be more hardened but the fact is is that jordan grew up in a war where she could not contribute she wasn't old enough she was not touched by it except by things like tin metal can drives and victory gardens and you know rosie the riveter ads and so she didn't see the effects of war crimes the way someone in europe during the war would have and this is not part of her cultural experience either we don't have those she didn't wouldn't have seen those movies, those and that plant that kind of cultural suspicion in you to look suspiciously at people. And so she's very anxious, you know, when her father brings this new woman home. You know, like with any nuclear family, either someone is going to be determined, you know, I don't want this to happen and I want to sabotage it, or they're anxious for it to go right. And she's very anxious for this to go right. Her dad has finally brought home a girlfriend. She wants it to go well for him. So the last thing she wants to do is rock the boat and upset his unhappiness. And that's a big deal for a girl who's 17 and who loves her father. And it's always been the two of them. And she wants it to be good now that it's the three of them. And yet she can't get rid of the suspicion. Yes. And she has a boyfriend of her own um, as well. Yeah, I wanted to give her a boyfriend because he, you know, as the all-American girl, she has the all-American 
co-gad boyfriend, and he's somebody who can be an ally and a sounding board for her. And I wanted to prove to even that um, I was going to introduce another love interest for her later. I wanted her to have to show the reader that she had good taste and that she had, you know, a good relationship with the men in her life, whether her father or her boyfriend. And, um, that, that relationship is a good, healthy one. And, um, will also provide a seed for some help further down the line when she really needs it. She also, um, acquires a new sister as a result of this relationship. Um, and, in fact, the new sister is one of the things that first makes her suspicious of uh, Anna, her new stepmother. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Ruth? Yes. Um, Jordan, one of the things that she loves about her, this woman her father has brought in, is that uh, this woman is a widow, supposedly, and has a young daughter named Ruth, who's only about four years old. And it's very sweet, very quiet. Um, and, you know, she's adorable. Ruth, then uh, Jordan adores her immediately and wants to make friends with her. She's shy. Jordan wants to bring her out of her shell and make her happy. And yet at the same time, she can't help but notice there are some odd things about Ruth, that Ruth has night terrors, that she sometimes seems afraid of her mother and sometimes clings to her. And there are a number of other things that seem sometimes a little off, but her stepmother, Anna, explains that Ruth has had some bad experiences as a child in a war zone when the two of them were coming over from as refugees. And that is perfectly plausible. You know, any child coming as a refugee is going to have some bad experiences and certainly enough grist for night terrors. So, again, it's nothing that Jordan can put her finger on, but it's something that, again, makes her think there might be more to the story than her stepmother is telling her. The only thing that she does know for certain when it comes to Ruth is that she does love Ruth, you know, un in an uncomplicated way and knows that Ruth is the best part about what has come into her life. And she it gives her someone to care about and to, and to invest in and to hope that, you know, she doesn't want to do anything that would hurt Ruth further. And another reason I decided to make Ruth on the young side, and she is very young, is that I wanted to make sure that she was not old enough to remember anything useful. So it wasn't as simple a matter as simple of a matter as Jordan asking her, can you tell me if your mother is lying or not? If she says blank, Ruth is honestly too young to remember very much about her wartime, just that she has some unspecified unresolved fears and that in a way can provide clues and unease, but it's not going to provide definitive answers. I wanted the characters to work hard for the definitive answers. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yes, right. Um, so I'm going to move you now to talk about Ian and his friend Tony Radomovsky. Um, we're moving now from 1946 to 1950, so we're five years after the war. And, and um, so well, I think you've already told me what turned Ian into um, a war crimes investigator. Where does Tony come into it? Well, I knew I would need someone, a partner, a friend for Ian to have not only work with, because, you know, it's a shoestring operation, but it's hard to be a one-man operation when you're dealing with pounds and pounds of paperwork and files and cases and so forth. So I liked the idea of a sort of shoestring two-man operation. These men who do everything together, they work together, and they are friends as well. And Ian, as a character, is disciplined, reserved, a little older. He's in his mid-30s. Um, yeah, I think he's about 38. And then um, 
you know, on the quiet side, he's the quintessential British gentleman. And so I wanted to give him someone to contrast. So he has somehow picked up this loquacious, hyperverbal, practical joking, uh, very funny American sidekick, as it were, named Tony. And the two of them, is I wanted to have that sort of buddy cop thing where they do rebound off of each other rather well, and despite their differences. And the thing about giving their motivation, however, is that when you look at the war crimes investigators, the people who devoted their lives to hunting Nazis, you're looking at people almost involved, almost, um, what's the word? Well, you're looking at almost all of them have had some kind of loss in that in the war, something that has helped to motivate them. Some are motivated, yes, just by simple, you know, this is what is right and someone needs to do it and that needs to be me. But there are a number who were motivated by personal loss. So Ian is a very uh, specific personal loss in that his younger brother, who was a prisoner of war, shot down and then taken to a prisoner of war camp in Germany and then into Poland happened to be killed on an escape attempt. And that's something that motivates him to try to find the people who kill not just uh, refugees and Jews and Poles and gypsies and all the other undesirables, but also a number of allied airmen who were downed and then murdered, which was a considerably ugly problem that was dealt with as well post-war. Tony, on the other hand, is part Jewish and from his mother's side. And even though he is American, he is from an immigrant family. He has rafts and rafts of immigrant cousins from Romania and France and Poland and Germany and all over the place. And so he has grown up speaking a polyglot of languages, which makes him very useful as an interpreter and a translator, very helpful in their work. But it also means that he has losses on his mother's side, you know, whole branches of cousins that he realizes after the war disappeared into the horror of the Holocaust and were lost there. So he has motivation to want to find the criminals who escaped that net of Nuremberg and to bring them to justice because he has losses in his own family to avenge. And he has something personal to prove as well, because I had it be that his skills with languages meant that when he enlisted as a soldier, he did not become a GI at the front. He never fired a weapon in anger. He was simply slotted into the interpreter translator corps and spent his entire war in a tent. And that's not something he feels very good about. He feels like he can still contribute and he should still contribute. And so rather than go home and pursue the American dream, as so many GIs did, he decided to continue the fight and joined up with Ian and became a war crimes investigator. Yes, yes, that is an important part of his personality and also an important part of the war, I think, um, because I think a lot of men did feel that if they weren't in active combat, they were somehow, you know, serving in a lesser capacity or something like that. So last but definitely not least, we meet Nina Markova. Uh, who we um, soon discover comes from Lake Baikal, <clears throat> I can say this, Lake Baikal in Siberia. And unlike the others, we find her at be long before the war, actually, when she's a child in Lake Baikal and follow her um, all the way through um, to her uh, landing in Poland uh, and running into the Huntress at a certain point in the story, which we will not get that far. But um, she, tell us about her. Tell us about her as a character, as a person, and her 
what drives her to become a night night witch? Uh, Nina, I absolutely loved writing. I've rarely had a character take off on me quite so strongly as she did while I was trying to write her. She almost ran away with the book on me. And I, you will see her in two of the timelines, even right from the beginning, because with three timelines and three narrators, the idea being is that eventually they all merge, but they do all start in different ways and different places and even in different years. So you see Nina post-war and you see when you see her, when she walks into Ian's office, you know that already that she is the one witness they have who has survived meeting the Huntress. And that's why they want her with them because she can make a positive identification, but you don't know how she met the Huntress and you don't know how this little Russian woman who is about as wild as a Wolverine in some ways ended up outside the USSR. And so that sets up a bit of a mystery for Nina. And that's why one of my timelines flips back to Nina starting out, because really the question is, how did she go from growing up in the wilds at the very eastern edge of the world and then end up all the way halfway across the, across the globe, hunting down the woman who she had some kind of fatal encounter with, but about which she will not talk but on the other hand, who she really wants to, is motivated to hunt down. So I really enjoyed following Nina, which uh, not only from her childhood on Baikal, which I chose because, you know, Lake Baikal is a really, really beautiful setting. It's the largest freshwater lake in the world. It's got the most incredible light, uh, flora and fauna attached to it. And the ice pictures alone are simply unbelievable. And I thought that anyone who grew up here, I mean, that is just, they're going to be different with a capital D, especially in the really remote parts, which are far, far away from big cities or even big towns. So that's where she grows up and she grows up, you know, hunting, trapping with all these skills that, you know, you don't normally have if you grow up in any kind of uh, normal city setting or town setting. And then, she, but she's always motivated. She wants to get away. She wants to not end up like the rest of her family, most of whom are end up criminals or poor or in jail or otherwise, and she wants to get out. And she has her first sight of a plane when it's a mail plane that crashes off course and has to make repairs and leave. And she knows from that then on, I'm going to get in the air. That's what I can do. I can do that. And so she manages to get to the nearest city. And fortunately, during this time, Moscow, the directive was for pushing a lot of air clubs and glider schools because Russia was really trying to match the aviation drive of the West. So they were pushing their young people to get involved in aviation. And so these schools popped up that were teaching uh, young people to fly. And so Nina gets into one and she becomes a pilot and she lives for flying. And that's where she is when she's really just a young woman in her 20, in your early twenties when the war hits and when Hitler invades Russia which is really a colossally bad decision, but it also provided opportunities for girls like Nina when not only was the Red Air Force mobilizing almost everyone they could get, but Marina Raskova, who was the Amelia Earhart famous aviatrix of the USSR, managed to get funded and trained three all-female regiments of flyers. And Nina managed to join the night bombers and then become a night witch. And that's how her story and how she fights in the war begins. And what can you tell us about her relationship with Ian? Um, Well, it's not too much of a spoiler since it pretty much happens at the end of the first chapter. But what we know from when she walks into Ian's office is that he's 
gobsmacked to see her. He has only met her a few times. And then the thing that is really surprising is that uh, she's his wife. And we see this in 1950. She's been his wife for a number of years. And what we learn is that essentially it's a green, green card marriage. He met her in the chaos after the war when he was looking for his brother who had turned out to have died. And he didn't find his brother, but he found Nina. Nina, we know, has uh, was with his brother who was killed by the Huntress. And that is at the core of the confrontation between them, about which she really will not discuss any further. But he knows this, and he owes Nina a debt for having told him, given him his brother's last words, his brother's last uh, time, and having been his brother's friend, which she was. And so she's desperate to escape in that point uh, the post-war mess that is Poland. She's in the middle of Poland. He doesn't know how she got there. They, at that point, aren't even speaking the same language. But he does know that she was desperate to get out. And so he doesn't see any other way but to marry her. And he gets her to England, and then she sets up life there. But he sets up life in Europe to continue the Nazi hunting and to begin his work along trying to find war crimes investigators or trying, and trying to find war crimes, um, set up the war crimes investigation. And so he and Nina do not cross paths for a number of years except to exchange a few telegrams. And then she comes walking back into his life right when the hunt for the huntress begins. And he realizes this woman he married, he knows nothing about her. And that they meant to get divorced after this, you know, once the green cards came through, but, you know, that didn't really work. You know, everybody was too busy to pursue it. And um, now he has a wife he knows nothing about. And she has a past she will not discuss. And the reader is slowly seeing Nina's past unfold in the wartime timeline, just as Ian is starting to get to know the woman he married a little better as well. Well, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, they are rather different personalities. Um, How do they end up, how how does it end up that they agree to work together to find the Huntress? Well, I had fun with their rapidly different personalities because I just love the idea that, you know, the quintessential English gentleman who, you know, went to public school and played cricket and, you know, drinks Earl Grey and has a starched shirt, you know, and it's just, you know, the absolute essence of the British gentleman, you know, the essence of civilization, uh, somehow finds himself entangled with this woman who is this little Siberian savage, as she would call herself without any problem, who literally swaggers in and, you know, destroys every room she's in just by walking through it and carries a straight razor in her boot and puts jam in her tea, which he thinks is an utter desecration. And the fun I had with that really was, um, I really did enjoy that. And but ultimately what draws them together is that they are professionals. They both means, it, it means a lot to them to catch the huntress. and. The thing is that Ian wants to find wants to find her because she murdered his brother. Nina wants to find her because this woman murdered a friend of hers, and also she cro- uh, tried to murder Nina as well. So they have that motivation, and they will do just about anything if they can make sure this woman is caught. Now, he's the one with the war crimes investigation experience, and Nina is the one who has seen the Huntress face-to-face and knows her and has and knows what she looks like, because otherwise they have no picture of her. They have no name. So he needs Nina. Nina needs him. And from that, they decide to work together and start the hunt. 
So there's so much to discuss in this book. We could probably talk for hours and just hit the highlights. But um, there are a couple of themes that, that show up over and over. Um, one of them I found particularly interesting is that there's a constant shift in the roles between huntress and hunted, uh, starting from the very first page where the huntress is suddenly the hunted. And there's also a, a theme of witches, basically water witches in particular, um, Lake Selkie, Lake Krusalka, um, and of course the night witches themselves, although they're not water witches particularly. Um, did you just come up with these things? Did they develop over time or did you consciously plan them? Uh, well, I like to play with the idea of hunter and hunted because the huntress, that is the official nickname that the German woman who is the war criminal has. Die Jägerin means the huntress. And her German compatriots gave her that nickname in admiration because she was such a good shot and because she could, she enjoyed the hunting of uh, prisoners, Poles, and you know Jews as well. And that was something that really was quite admired in her social circle, which just about tells you everything you need to know. But even though she's the one they call the huntress, you know, the Nazi hunters, that's another kind of hunting, and it's a much more benevolent one. And Nina, who grows up, you know, literally hunting seals by the lake, uh, by Lake Baikal, is also a huntress as well, because she literally does know how to stalk and how to uh, corner prey in a much more atavistic and um, primitive way, because she has known what it is to live right on the edge and have to rely on that or else you're going to die. So I like the idea that in the end, all three of my female characters, in a way, have become a different kind of huntress. And that in the end, the woman who was first called the huntress has now become the hunted instead. And it's not something she knows how to deal with. So that was that one. And then as far as the Rusalka and Water Witch theme, I really came across that sort of with a eureka <laughs> cry because I was racking my brains for a way in which I could join up both physically and thematically my Night Witch story to my Nazi hunter story. And I knew it was the, where do I move Nina out of the USSR and into Europe where she can run into the other characters and have that crucial link. And as I'm looking around, I happen to find in Poland, there is a really beautiful little man-made lake, which was made by the Nazis, actually, in 1942 or 43, when they dammed a river. And they made this beautiful little pleasure lake, which was christened Lake Rusalka. And Rusalka, I already knew, is the Russian name, and Eastern European as well, for a water witch, a water nymph that is sometimes benevolent and sometimes malevolent. And it's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful myth that comes out of, you know, Russian folklore. It's something that Nina would have absolutely heard growing up. And I thought suddenly that's a location with a Russian setting built in. And then I had the idea, well, then I'll put Nina on her shore of her own lake, Lake Baikal, which if there was ever a lake that had a Rusalka in it, it's that one. And then suddenly the idea of pulling all the characters together through lakes and having them all stand at the beginning on very different lake shores and then come together till finally they're standing on the shore of the same lake looking into each other's eyes seemed like a wonderful way to pull everything through thematically and geographically. So I looked for, you know, Lake Baikal is where Nina begins. Lake Rusalka is where she will have the fatal encounter, first encounter with the Huntress. And then I threw in a number of other interesting you know, water 
witch myth because that is something that comes through a lot of folklore. Silky Lake is a fictional lake, I admit, but in uh, Massachusetts, I made it up, but a Selkie is a Scottish water nymph. And then Lorelei, which is one of the names the huntress goes by, is the German word for a German water fairy, a Lorelei, which is also part of her dreams, her nightmares, and her mythology. So with the idea of the nymph, which is sometimes thought of as a witch, and then translates also to night witches who escape the water and go to the sky, as Nina sort of thinks she has done, when she escapes her lakeside home and becomes a flyer. It all came together rather nicely, although I think really it all started with finding that there was a lake in Poland named Lake Rusalka, and I could use it as a setting. <laughs> well, that, that's how it works, isn't it? <laughs> yep, that is how it works. So what would you like readers to take away from the Huntress? I'm hoping they will learn a little something about women of the past who have done some truly amazingly brave things, the night witches, and then also the women like Jordan who became uh, war photographers and journalists because there were some ladies who did truly astounding things during World War II who Jordan admires and who she wants to be like. And I hope uh, readers, as always, want to learn more about women of the past who have been very brave and who've been sometimes unfairly forgotten. And I hope too that especially in the current climate where we are seeing the troubling rise of fascist tendencies, again, fascist groups, anti-Semitism, how easy it is for these things to come in a wheel. And I hope it makes people think a little more seriously about what that line is between justice and vengeance and what care should be taken that there are some lines that are not crossed and that what care should also in consideration should be taken to make sure that the wheel doesn't turn and that these things don't come back. And what about you? Um, The Huntress is due for release by the end of February and are you already working on something new? Uh, Yes, I actually am working on a book now. It's tentatively titled The Rose Code and it's going to be about three female code breakers who are hard at work in Bletchley Park during World War II and whose efforts to break the German military codes, by some estimates, shortened the war between two and four years. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that, and I hope we get to talk to you again when it comes out. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Kate. No, thank you so much for having me. Really delighted to be here. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Kate Quinn about The Huntress. Find out more about her at www.katequinnauthor.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.